0: well our citizenship here on earth is temporary it's passing it's not unimportant it's to be used for the cause of christ but it's temporary it's passing the other one though in heaven is permanent and enduring and you live in the temporary one in light of the permanent one and you don't get that one backwards and we don't we live on earth as we live on earth we conduct ourselves as a worthy people of Jesus Christ. And that's one of the greatest witnesses that we have in the world. And the opposite's true. When we don't live worthily, Christ's testimony is is dulled. I mean, you might think of it this way. When you were lost, what did you think of people who were Christians in name only? I'm a Christian. The morning glory Christians. What did you think of the morning glory Christians that only showed up on Sunday morning, but Saturday night they were in the beer joint? Or they Monday they, they cursed at the water cooler? Or, or better yet, what did you think about the Easter lilies who only showed up once a year? That was on Easter Sunday morning. Well, you probably didn't think a whole lot about their witness or their testimony. They didn't really have one. Now think about the opposite. Think about someone whose life was was undeniably committed to Jesus Christ. There there was a difference, wasn't there? Before I was saved, I didn't want to hear anything that a Christian had to say, even good ones. But there's one thing that I could not deny whenever I looked at the life of the lady that was instrumental in leading me to the Lord, Theda Lewis. I could not deny the genuine nature of her life. I used to say she was the real deal. I could say nothing bad about her. Her conduct shut my mouth toward her her witness, toward her testimony. Paul is calling us to live that way, a worthy way. John MacArthur said, we are witnesses to the world. And the world says, what are you a witness to? And we say, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they say, why is that good news? And we say, because it delivers you from your sin. And then they look at our lives and say, you don't look too delivered. That's a condemnation. You see how that works? Paul is not giving us a mantra of uh, lifestyle evangelism. You've probably seen this on t-shirts. Preach the gospel and use words if necessary, which is silliness, by the way. I mean, Paul's in prison for preaching. He's saying how you live. Helps make what you say believable. And how you live can actually deaden the words that you're commanded to speak. I don't want to do anything in my life to hinder the message of Jesus Christ. Do you? Of course you don't. And so Paul says to you and to me, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And Paul desires To see the Philippians doing that or hear about it. The same goal. And so he reminds them of their accountability. Look at verse 27 again. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm. He commands them to live a worthy life and then reminds them that they're accountable to others for that life. I mean, the Bible rarely gives imperatives or or commands without, without accountability. We're commanded to love one another and to forgive one another, and we're commanded to do many other things, but, but other people hold us accountable to obey those things. When you run into that person that you're supposed to forgive, and they know that you haven't forgiven them, you're accountable. Paul's drawing some accountability into the picture here. That's why Hebrews 10, 24, and 25... It's what it means whenever it, it says we're not to forsake, forsake the, the, the assembling. It, it has an accountability effect. We provoke one another to toward toward obedience. This is one of the dangers that you are in right now. I mean for five weeks you haven't been able to gather together. And and there is a, a lack of accountability of the church body that's happening in your life right now. And you need to be very cautious about what you look at and where you go and what you do. You need to open your life up even more than, than you would have in a, in a normal circumstance. And Paul is holding them accountable with the idea of his scrutiny. One way or the other, whether Paul comes or, or, he, or he hears, they should be prepared to give an answer, give an answer for how they're living. Do you chafe whenever someone checks up on you? Do you avoid people knowing your business? That's a dangerous pattern. You're likely headed for fall if that's a pattern in your life. Holy lives don't avoid scrutiny. Tainted ones do. One well, of Satan's oldest trick in the book is to isolate you and pick you off one at a time. And the more isolated you get, the less you share your life with others, the, the weaker you you become, as I said, that's one of the dangers lurking during the shutdown. Don't fall asleep. Don't fall to temptation. Our behavior should not be based, though, on who is watching, but whose we are. And Paul specifically defines now what a worthy look, life looks like. Look at verse 27 again. What's he hoping to see or hear? He's hoping to see here that they're standing firm standing firm in in one spirit that's the first obligation and it's a defensive posture i mean what do you what do you think about when somebody is standing firm you it's a it's a defensive posture it's it's the idea to stand in this in this verse it carries the idea of conviction or 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 commitment it means to hold one's ground uh, doctrinally morally it's a it's a picture of a, of a resolute soldier with his, with his back foot planted and his, his left shoulder bracing uh, for whatever, whatever comes. I mean, you can just see a Roman soldier uh, in the position of, uh, of a bracing for, for an attack. It's one thing to, to take a hill in battle. It, it's another thing to hold it. And Paul here is talking about About holding it. The Philippians have already taken the hill. They're believers. Now Paul says stand. Stand firm. Hold the hill. And we're to do that in one spirit. Meaning that we're we're united in one spirit. We're we're, we're united around a a body of truth. Which is is the Bible. Paul says we're to stand like resolute soldiers on the word of of God. That's the hill that, that we die on and John Lightfoot said the word indicates the determination of a soldier who does not budge one inch from his post. A worthy citizen of heaven does not give one inch of ground whenever it comes to the, to the word of God. Not morally, not doctrinally, not to the evolutionist, not to the psychiatrist, not to, to anyone else. That's worthy conduct, Paul says. No matter your circumstances, in prison out of prison, whether somebody comes or, or whether they hear, Worthy conduct stands firm. You ever listen to a politician who talks out of both sides of their mouth? And you say like every day, I mean, every time I turn the TV on. How much confidence do you put in them? I mean, if you had to depend on them, do you think you could depend on them standing firm? Well, about as long as it would benefit them. You don't put a lot of stock in what they say. People, Paul says... People should have confidence in us as Christians, even if they disagree with us, because our lives are immovably fixed on the Bible. There is something that is significant. It's something that is is worthy. There's a worthiness to, to a Christian, even if you're an unbeliever and you disagree with them, that they are resolute, they're unflinching, they're immovably fixed on the Bible. It's as the great theologian Aaron Tippin once said, you've got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. And I want to tell you that when you stand for something, you will face opposition. You'll face opposition. That's why some people don't stand. That's why some people capitulate about a literal Genesis or, or, or anything else in the Bible. The devil doesn't care if a church is wishy-washy or ambivalent about truth. It doesn't care how much loving you do, how many wells that that you dig, how many good deeds that you do. If you will give up on the Bible, he'll leave you alone. You're no threat to him. But have a firm conviction about the Bible, and you will feel the ill winds blow, my friend. That's one of the ways that you can actually know where you stand. There is a scene in, uh, in a great movie called Unbroken about World War II hero, uh, Lou Zamperini, where the Japanese find out who he is and that they have him in this prison camp. And, and uh, in this prison camp, it's, it's rough. It's, it's filthy. There's little food. And they find out who he is. They bring him to a five-star hotel in Tokyo with a shower and gourmet food, and all of this is an attempt to, to get him to do a radio broadcast as, as, that they can use as propaganda. And so they, they say, you don't even have to say bad things about America. Just, just talk to your family. And Lou Zamperini refused, and he was sent back to the prison camp and mistreated even worse. If there is no opposition to your life and the world cooperates with you, that's a sure sign that you're standing on the wrong side. It doesn't matter who the pastor is, whether he's around. It doesn't matter if we gather or not. You need to believe and behave in a biblical way. You must stand for truth against error. You must stand for holiness against wickedness. You must stand for life and not death. You must stand against Satan and his system. Paul says you must choose which side you're on and stand there. That's a worthy citizen. And he also says that you need to play on the the same team. He gives the second obligation here. The second obligation of a worthy life is to strive together with one purpose. Look at verse 27 again. He says, so that whether I come and see or remain absent, I will hear. Number one, you're standing firm in one spirit. Number two, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. There's the second obligation right there. Paul starts with the defensive posture, standing. And now he lays out the game plan for the offensive side of the ball. He says we must strive together with one mind. The image here is... is, is, is a group of players on the, on the same team working side by side to win. You're like a, a worthy citizen is like a resolute soldier and a worthy citizen is like a team player. That's what Paul says here. One mind striving together. You can hear the team. You're not a lone warrior on a hill left by your commander. You're one of many soldiers. Part of the, the same corps. Your uniform, even the uniform on a team Tells you that you're part of a, of a whole. It keeps you from throwing the ball to the wrong person. And you're on a team, and that team is, is visible in your local church. That's what Paul's saying. He's writing to the Philippians, to the local church. The word that Paul uses here for striving is, 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 an, is like an athlete, what an athlete does in a contest, specifically wrestling. It's not the only time that Paul uses an analogy of sports. See, in 2 Timothy 2, two, he says you're like an enlisted soldier, a hard-working farmer. And then he says a competitive athlete who competes according to the rules. And competing according to the rules as a worthy citizen is that you strive together. You play on a team. And in both places, Paul describes the, the work that unites us, that, that brings the team together, is the gospel. Notice what he says here. You stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's the uniform. You're not united around lesser things, but one main thing, the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul says the church defends the Bible doctrinally, and the church fights side by side missionally for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly why the devil aims at the, the church's unity. If Satan can break the chain of fellowship and destroy unity, then then he doesn't even have to fight the church missionally. He doesn't have to fight the church spreading the gospel because we're too busy fighting against ourselves. We're weakened. Listen, so many petty squabbles that dominate the church's attention are over utter nonsense in light of the gospel. Interpersonal conflicts, he said, she said, likes, dislikes, whatever it might be. It's just raw carnality masked in righteous offenses. That's what James 4 says. James 4 says, what are the source of the quarrels and conflicts among you? That's among the church. Is not the the source your desires that wage war in your members? That's where it comes from. And when you're focused on your wants and, and your rights... It's a distraction from the gospel. You're not striving together in one purpose or with one purpose. And when it gets to a congregational level, it keeps the whole church off guard. Can you imagine what type of of Great Commission effort would go on if, if there wasn't so much bickering and fussing in churches or even in the hearts of people? Don't get distracted. Don't get distracted during the shutdown and get off message. Stop bickering about our circumstances. Use the time to work for for Jesus Christ. Strive together for the faith of the the gospel. Not whether your Sunday school teacher mentioned your birthday or not. There's way bigger fish to fry than that. It's an unbelieving world that's going to fry eternally if they don't hear the gospel of Christ. Paul says it's not about us, folks. The opposition that we face is, should not be in here. It's out there. That's the mission field, but that's also where the opposition comes from. So Paul gives us the third obligation of a worthy life. It's to steadily respond to all opposition. If you would, verse 28. After he tells them to stand, defensive posture, Strive together, offensive for the faith of the gospel. He says in verse 28, In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign or proof of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And, and that too is from God. The third worthy conduct that Paul defines here is very different from the first two. Defensive doctrinally like a resolute soldier, offensive missionally like a team player, and now fortified internally like an unflinching steed. The word was used for a timid horse that, that learned to be unspookable. Now, I haven't ridden many horses in my life, but, but I can remember very distinctly one time my best friend talked me into getting on a horse. And it wasn't even a big horse, it was a Shetland pony. And we went out riding, and he was on a big quarter horse. And when the time came for the road to split, the one went to the barn and one went to the house. We wanted the horses to go to the house. The horses wanted to go to the barn, and he didn't get my saddle on very tightly. And so when I pulled on the reins, the horse went this way, and I went that way, and I went off. And I swore then never to ride anything without handlebars and a gas a throttle. A horse can cause you a lot of problems if it's not trained especially one that can be spooked and Paul's been talking about battle here you don't want a timid horse in the middle of battle it means not fearing specifically Paul says those who oppose you not alarmed by your opponents a worthy life is an unflinching one when opposition comes because you know where you're, you're headed. It's a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And Paul brings us back to, to what he just got done talking about. To live as Christ and to die as gain. You're a winner either way. And that opposition against you is actually a sign. If you're being opposed, it's evidence that you're saved. That you're Christ. And if you're being opposed, it's evidence that you're on the right side. But you can't fear whenever you, you have that opposition. The word that Paul uses here for frightened does not appear anywhere else in the New Testament. It's a very helpful metaphor. You just get the picture the issue would, would cause. A Calvaryman that is fearless himself is, is not much good if he's riding a fearful mount. Both the horse and the rider must be stable. And so you can stand on, on doctrine. You can, you can work together for the gospel missionally. But, but if if when you're opposed by, by the world, if you cower at that point, then those two things don't matter. Paul says you're not to flinch when you act like a Christian and uh, opposition comes because you're on the winning side. When I was growing up, my, my dad had a, a Springer Spaniel, a dog named King, that he wanted to be a bird dog and the only problem was the dog was gunshot. So every time you would fire a gun around the dog, he would just run or hunker down. And you can imagine that doesn't work too well for bird hunting. So to train the dog, my dad bought me a starter pistol. And he had me go out every morning and fire the pistol around the dog. So the dog would get used to gunfire and not, and not cower when, when he heard it. Paul says a worthy Christian will not cower whenever they hear the enemy's drums. They'll, they'll not cower when they hear 10,000 footsteps marching toward them. They'll stand firm and they'll strive with others, but they'll not flinch. And the way that God prepares you to do that is by facing smaller struggles, until smaller oppositions until you're, you're able to face larger opponents. Some of those oppositions may come from within, within your own heart, come from within your own family, come from... Than outer. He fires the starter pistol over your head so you won't run when real bullets fly. And I'm afraid there's quite a few Christian foghorn leghorns running around tooting their horn about what they would do in the face of opposition and being kind of bold. And, and they have no idea that whenever the real bullets begin to fly they're going to cower because they've really never taken a stand. It's one of the reasons that Christian children can go off the deep end when they go to college or get out from under mom and dad's nose. They're they're never allowed to bear any weight on their own. And so they crumble when it comes. Don't underestimate the little things. Don't do everything for your children where they won't learn to bear weight. And don't run from every conflict that you have. It, it, It gives you a spiritual hide that you need that's tough. God allows us to be faithful in small things so we can prove faithful in greater things. And, and as we do, it's a testimony, both to yourself and also to those who oppose you. Look at verse 28 again. He says, no way alarmed. That's the, that's the worthy component. No way alarmed by your, your opponents. But he says something else. That lack of alarm is a sign of destruction for them, but, but of salvation for, for you. A sign. It's a sign, it's a testimony, it's a, it's a proof. Your, un, uh, your steady, unflinching resolve in the face of opposition and persecution shows those who oppose you that you're approved by God and that shows you the same thing as well. There's an internal aspect and external. Paul says it's proof. He uses the same idea in 1 Corinthians 18, 118. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Paul says, standing firm and striving together without being frightened is a sign of our salvation and their, their judgment, their destruction. Here's where internal fortitude comes from that, that, that keeps you from flinching. You stand, you strive, and are strengthened under opposition. It, it, that you're the Lord's. And you learn that he'll not forsake you. Notice where the sign comes from. It's from God, in verse 28. And that too from God. The sign's from God. But it's, a, it's also a sign to unbelievers. You're not to be alarmed, but it's, it's a sign of destruction for them. G. Walter Hansen said, Steadfast Christians united in their witness to Christ presented a sign that is interpreted in opposite ways by those inside the church and those outside. Standing together is a sign of victory. An unflinching witness is powerful, isn't it? Paul could speak as an authority on this because he experienced it. I mean, think about what, Apostle Paul, what the Apostle Paul is writing here about someone unflinching. And not being alarmed by by components, just steady resolve no matter what they do to you. Do you think the Apostle Paul ever witnessed anything like that? Paul stood by and held the coat of Stephen as he watched his unflinching resolve, even on his knees looking into heaven, said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing. Stephen was like the horse that took fire and was beaten and never winced. You think that didn't affect the Apostle Paul? You better believe it did. You don't think that was in the back of Paul's mind whenever he was knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus? You don't think that added to his conviction in salvation? You don't think that was going around in his mind? You never know what the Lord's going to use. You think it's because you leave a track and praise the Lord if you do or you share the gospel, but it may be your unflinching resolve in the face of opposition that the Lord uses to soften somebody's heart in the gospel. When somebody opposes us, we immediately think of winning or losing or what we're going to lose because they've taken something from us. But God says your calm resolve and your eternal mindset is actually a witness that he may use to draw them to himself. We see it with human eyes as an event in time all about... Our things, our rights, our fairness, whatever it is. But God says every event, even how you respond to someone doing wrong, is an eternal act, A seed planted that he can harvest later like he did with Paul. Does that change your perspective on suffering, on opposition? It does mine. We'll put it in your current context. In the current context, people are watching you. There's not persecution from The virus, per se, but the way you respond is a witness. You may run into people who fear it greatly, and, and your calm and yet unflinching life is an opportunity to draw them to God. As I said, you don't be ignorant, but not fearing. They see it and they wonder how you can do that. It, it may even reveal something in them that they, that they lack. That strength doesn't come from you. It comes from the Lord. And that's what Paul says next. He wraps it up here with this fourth obligation. It's to suffer well on Christ's behalf. Look at verse 29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Uh, Paul saves the... The absolute best for for last here. He gives us the command. He describes what the the command of worthy conduct looks like. And then he tells us how or where the strength comes from to to obey it. Whatever God commands, God gives a Christian the ability to, to carry out. So he focuses on the strength that God promises in suffering that you're going through. Did you notice in verse 28 and 29, God says that he grants you three things? Look at the verse 28 again. And that too from God, what's from God? The, the strength to, to, to endure your opponents. And then there's two things that God grants you in verse 29. For to you it has been granted to believe and to suffer. You see that? He grants you strength in your opposition in verse 28. He grants you belief in verse 29. And he grants you the privilege of suffering also in verse 29. Verse 28 ends and verse 29 starts. And that too from God. He's already covered the strength or salvation from those that oppose you. And so, so he uses that springboard into this very this pivotal verse. God has granted you not only to believe, but also to, suffer, also to suffer for his name's sake. He shows you where the strength to fulfill these obligations come from. It's from God, who granted you salvation and the privilege to suffer as his follower. And those two things are connected together. And there's some grammatical argument in Ephesians 2 about whether Paul is saying saving faith is a gift from God, Or the grace of salvation is the gift. You know the verse well. You probably memorized it. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. What's the gift? Is it faith or is it grace of salvation? Well, there's there's a grammatical argument there. It could be legitimate. But there's no grammatical dispute about this passage. Paul says God graciously grants you faith. It's his gift. Look at the verse again. For to you, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe, it's been granted for you to believe in him. The word is charis. It's grace. It means gift. God's grace grants you belief or faith in him. It's a beautiful truth. God doesn't wait on you to choose him because you never would. He grants you the desire and the ability to believe without ever violating or molesting your, your will. He activates it. He uses circumstances and troubles and, and witnesses and many other things to bring you to the point where you desire Him. You sit under the gospel and the Holy Spirit of God quickens you. He makes you alive. He regenerates you. And with that life, then you respond in faith. But He gives... You have the ability to believe on Him. And that way He gets all the glory. Isn't that what verse 29 says? For you it has been granted for Christ's sake. Why has the gift been given? For Christ's sake. <laughs> Meaning you believe so that the Son might receive the glory for His suffering. It's exactly what Revelation declares. The people from every tongue, tribe, and nation are part of Christ's reward. You're Christ's inheritance that the Father promised him before the foundation of the world. God promised a bride to Jesus Christ, a people from every tongue. And you say, what's the point? Well, look at what else he says. Paul connects two points here. For to you it has been granted for Christ. Why would, would Paul bring some doctrine of salvation here? Because the next thing he's going to talk about, you need to be reminded of what God granted you in salvation because you're going to suffer because of that salvation. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake. Notice Paul's second point. The first point is vital. It goes with the second one. Paul starts with the gift of faith as an encouragement for the second gift, salvation first, then suffering God reminds you that he grants you belief unto salvation because that belief in Christ will bring suffering. It will bring opposition. And he wants you to connect those two points. When the Bible talks about salvation and all that God has done for you, it's for a purpose. It's not so that you can patch your... Your fat christian belly and say i am one of the chosen it's because you are you are going to suffer greatly there's going to be great risks and great costs because you name the name of christ and christ has set his name on you god granting you salvation and even believing his name isn't the end you will believe and call upon the name of the lord you will live a life that's worthy and that will bring suffering because you will look like Christ to a world in opposition. And Paul says that's a privilege. Notice that's what he says here. He's granted you the privilege to do that. And his point is, if God would grant you belief in His Son and to salvation, which brings opposition and suffering, do you think that He'll fail to strengthen you to endure it? Of course not. God will not grant you salvation and then fail to meet your spiritual needs in suffering And the implication is he won't fail to meet your needs in standing and striving together and becoming unflinching. God commands you a walk worthy of being a citizen of heaven. And he plucked you out of the the kingdom of darkness and he translated you into the kingdom of his dear son. And he tells you what that citizenship looks like, standing and striving, unflinching courage, and then he reminds you, He's the one that made you a citizen and promises that he'll meet every need to obey it. It's directly tied to Jesus Christ. This passage is one of the strongest in the New Testament against the idea that if we just make, look Jesus, make Jesus look attractive enough that people will come to him. This very verse d- defies the belief in, in, in both directions. Your salvation... Even your faith is a gift and those outside of Christ will oppose an authentic Christ. You preach an authentic gospel, it will be a stumbling block to the world. No matter how many good things that you will do for people. Doing good, loving unbelievers, sharing and being kind are all things that you should do. You're commanded to do. Those things, but not one of them has the power to change the heart. In fact, God often saves unbelievers through them rallying against you, railing against you, and they watch you unflinchingly stand. And once they wear out their hammer on your anvil, then they come to Christ. And that's how Paul wraps this whole thing up his example. Look at verse 30. It's you've. Ex- Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Paul says, you saw me live this way, and now you're hearing about it again as I'm in prison in Rome. And Paul has already said his suffering of imprisonment has been beneficial. It's progressed the gospel, strengthened the brethren. Predatory and guarded, even Caesar's household has heard the gospel because of Paul. Paul says, you've seen that same pattern in me. God granted me salvation when he knocked me off a horse and he gave me the gift of suffering for his name and now he made me like an unflinching donkey for the Lord's gospel to ride in the face of opposition. I want to be an unflinching donkey in the face of opposition for Jesus Christ, don't you? He strengthened me and you. Paul says he's strengthened his strengthening of me is an example to you, and because of that, you see that, you know that the Lord will do the same for you. That's how we live a worthy life. Like a resolute soldier standing on a post, one back foot planted, one shoulder forward, immovable morally, immovable doctrinally, you stand on the Bible. You live a worthy life like a, like a tug-of-war team struggling and pulling for a common victory. The victory is the gospel proclaimed to the uttermost parts of the earth, not victory over petty squabbles in the church. A worthy life like an unflinching, steely-eyed horse who is unmoved by the noise of this world, the noise of the battle, like a suffering apostle who knows salvation And the suffering that comes being associated with Christ is a privilege and it's a gift. And if we do that, Jesus Christ will get the glory that he deserves both now and forever. He'll get the glory in our lives and he'll get the glory in the people that he'll save through the testimony of our worthy lives. Father, I do thank you for your word. Only a few verses, but such a challenging passage. Oh God, I pray that you would help me and every Timberlaker to stand, to strive, to be unwavering and flinching, to be reminded that you will strengthen us and suffering for you is coming and it is a privilege Father, help us to use the citizenship that we have in this world for the one that is to come. Not neglect either, but never take our eyes off the ball. The main thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to live worthy lives that Jesus may be glorified. And I ask it all in His name. Amen.
1: Thank you pastor for those powerful truths this morning and thank you for joining with us if you uh, need some spiritual help or in some way we can be an encouragement to you we would love that opportunity we have counselors that are available you can call our offices um, monday through friday 9 to 4 p.m 9 a.m to 4 p.m at 434-237-6464 site at timberlake Baptist.org and you can actually make an appointment with a certified biblical counselor Go to our web page and scroll down to the bottom and you'll see the section that says Timberlake Biblical Counseling Center Click on there and just follow the instructions and we have somebody that would love to help you and uh, to talk with you If you also go to our website, you'll see that the pastor's sermon notes and outline is available um starting on Monday, and along with that, we will also um, have some review questions. It'll help you take the truths that we've heard this morning and um, deepen them into your life and would make um, great, um, be very, very helpful for you to sit down as a family and uh, talk through the sermon that we just heard. Also, for all of you that have uh, children, our Children's Invest Ministries, um, Brother Matt is doing some amazing things uh, for you. And this week, uh, he has another gift for your family that is going to be delivered. And uh, we trust that you will uh, enjoy that, be able to use that, help you in the home. And then on Thursday evening at 630, uh, Pastor Matt is going to do a live book reading for your uh, children. And so you have to go to the TBC Invest Facebook group page. And um, if you're a dinosaur like me and you're not exactly sure what that means, then just call the church or or get a hold of Pastor Matt, and he'll explain it all to you. And you can become part of that group, and Pastor Matt will read to your children. So uh, we trust you'll avail yourself of all of those, that you'll have a great uh, afternoon in the Lord.
0: God bless you.